The All Black Podcast is powered by our official cloud software partner, SAP, helping our teams in black become the best run teams in sport. To listen to this episode and all the All Black Podcasts, subscribe on Apple, Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. Kirafano, welcome to the All Black Podcast, powered by SAP. Today, a look under the hood at the engine of New Zealand rugby, where memories are made and All Blacks are created to discuss grassroots, grassroots footy as former Canterbury and Crusaders player and current general manager of community rugby. Welcome, Steve Lancaster. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. How's things, mate? All well? Good. Yeah, good. Club rugby's underway. School rugby's about to start, so we're uh, we're fizzing at the moment. Happy days. Good. Probably a little bit of weight off the shoulders when the, the season actually starts, no doubt. Oh, Question first up, mate. How does one become the general manager for New Zealand <laughs> rugby of community? Yeah, it's probably the hardest question you'll, you'll ask me today, I suspect, because I have no idea. <laughs> Here I am. Um, I think, yeah, to answer that, I think first and foremost, you have to have a deep care for the game. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you don't, if you don't actually have a, an intrinsic connection with this game and intrinsic drivers around the game, then this is probably not a role that you're going to find yourself in. Um, you know, most of my working career has been in professional and high-performance rugby and um, had some great experiences and, and great opportunities through that. But um, what gets me out of bed in the morning um, really is community rugby. I've, you know, I've had some fantastic experiences, uh, made some fantastic friendships along the way. Uh, and I want to see this game continue to provide those opportunities and experiences to New Zealanders for generations to come. So that's what smokes my tyres. That's why I'm here. Um, been fortunate enough to have played the game to a fairly high level, but um, right through from you know school and club grades to um, to Super Rugby level, uh, I've worked in the game in a number of capacities. As I said, professional rugby previously, high performance, taken some time out of the game, um, and back here where um, yeah where, where where I feel really connected to the game. Mate, I love it, and no doubt you uh, have many a strong opinion given to you on a day-to-day basis, which is awesome, which is why our game is, is such a great thing. A few warm-up questions before we get into the, the guts of the interview and look under the hood, but for you, any first rugby memories really stick out? Yeah, so I didn't really start playing rugby in earnest till I was about 14 years old at St Peter's College and uh, trialled for the under-15 open grade and, and made that. But my earliest rugby memory is actually running around barefoot playing rugby for my primary school, which is a little primary school called Monte Cecilia in Mount Roskill, probably five or six years old, uh, barefoot on Potter's Park. I played for a couple of seasons. I had no idea what I was doing. I think I was running the wrong direction half the time. Um, but you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm bigger than most kids. and um, So I, find, I ended up being put up through weight for age grades and, um, weight for age grades and uh, so I stopped uh, playing rugby after a couple of years at primary school because I was just playing with kids that were a lot older than me yeah. and wasn't really enjoying that. Um, but came back to it uh, at high school and have never left it. Mate, and if it looks like a lock and walks like a lock, has it always been a lock? You know, is that where yeah, you always plied your trade? <laughs> <laughs> sadly, I, I seem to have always been plonked in that position, but, you know, I'd unashamedly say it's the best and most important position on the field. Yeah, 100%. I'm sure many would agree with you. Uh, Favourite All Black growing up, can you remember? Yeah, I would say Andy Hayden. Oh, there we uh, go. Again, a lock. Yeah, rest um, in peace, great man. Yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate enough, actually, when I was in the Auckland Academy uh, out of high school um, to be mentored by Andy. Um, so had a had a personal connection with him as well. But, um, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, watching the All Blacks, watching Auckland play, he was pretty iconic and someone that I um, aspired to follow. 
Hundred percent, mate. What, sorry, there. I thought you were a red and black through and through Crusaders man, but you've, you're Auckland Academy and talking about things up and around this neck of the woods. What's going on there? What what go down to Canterbury then? Yeah, I've got a foot in both islands. It's fair <laughs> to say. Um, so born and raised Aucklander, uh, came up through the grades here in Auckland, uh, and yet played one game for Auckland back in ninety ninety one, I think it was, oh, or ninety two, maybe ninety two. Yeah. Uh, that was back in the days of Super Ten uh, when. Reserves were genuinely reserves and didn't take the field unless there was an injury. So I spent a whole season on the bench for Auckland uh, and had one appearance. Um, but then I was fortunate enough uh, in my mid-20s to have an opportunity um, or be presented with an opportunity with Canterbury and the Crusaders at the advent of Super Rugby. Uh, moved down there um, and, and had um, timed my run really well <laughs> in terms of moving <laughs> yeah. to Canterbury. So we had some great success, part of some great teams. Um, Started a family down there, uh, raised a family down there. Um, you know, through circumstance, find myself living back in Auckland now, and and uh, genuinely love both cities. So um, I have a real dilemma a couple of times a season sure. when that game comes around. Matt, well played, sat on the fence, extremely well there. Most memorable game and why? Can you remember some absolute crackers? Yeah, look again, a lot of memorable games. I, I think I've, I've been one of the luckiest people in rugby in some in terms of some of the teams I've played on and and people I've played with. Um, so have um, yeah, been fortunate enough to be involved in some pretty special games but for me uh, my most memorable rugby game is actually not one that I played in uh, this is uh, Christchurch Park probably about 15 years ago uh, watching my son play uh, under 6th grade first year of rugby ripper uh, scoring his first try against Sumner, yep. and um, that's 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 actually my most cherished rugby memory. Yeah, happy days, Yeah, I love that I love that and I'm sure there's been some crackers in your career as well um, Toughest player you've ever marked in wide, like, you know, she's the engine room that you used to deal in, the dark arts, you know, particularly perhaps back in the early days when there weren't as many television cameras going around, you know, were there some tough nuts to crack and, and who leaves a memory on you? Yeah, again, I think I was fortunate that I was on the same side as some of the, the <laughs> toughest players to mark and um, and benefited from their protection as a young fella, but um, for me, I would I would say Mark Andrews, oh, yeah. Natal yeah, Sharks right, and Springbok. Yeah. Absolute super um, legend in the early days, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, and uh, you talk about the dark arts, and um, yeah, he was he was a hard man. Um, yeah. He was technically really good, really tough to mark in the line-out. Great uh, athlete, eh? Like he was yeah. a huge, fat, Big athletic man. guy. Yep. Yeah, yep. and just tough. Yeah. 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 You knew you were marking a tough man <laughs> when you played Mark Andrews. Mate, how good. Um, any coaches, most influential coach, and, and perhaps why I know by the sounds of it, great mentoring from Andy Hayden, who was an absolute technician um, in his position, but is there some coaches that really stick out and maybe some characteristics that go with that? Yep. Again, a, a number of coaches that have left their mark on me and uh, I guess probably played a role in, in, in me still being in the game now and involved in giving back uh, through my role. Um, but... Yeah, one. I'll give you two. So the first one is a guy who's no longer with us, Eric Kalassi. He was an iconic coach at Auckland Marist back in the 90s. Led Auckland Marist to a couple of Gallagher Shield successes, which was a huge deal for the club. And I think any players that came through the club in that period, and a number of them went on to be great All Blacks, but they would probably all cite Eric as someone that was a really influential coach in their careers. Uh, and then I, you know, I frankly can't go past Wayne Smith. I um, was right. lucky enough to be coached by Smithy at the Crusaders, and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's Smithy. Yeah, <laughs> Don't yeah, have to yeah. say much more than that, really. Totally. I've yeah. actually Smithy's actually our next podcast, and, oh, cool. and like I'm struggling to condense it into one hour. Yeah. There's just so many things I want to chat to him about, and he's he's just such a great sharer as well, isn't he? He has a great philosophy around sharing knowledge and just making sure that he can help as many people as possible. So I'm I'm enjoying that, but um. 
Mate, you hinted on there a little bit. Auckland Maris, no doubt you keep an eye on their results, and there's been some fantastic players come through that club. I think JK and Fitzy and these sort of guys, wasn't it? But um, we've started club rugby. We're two or three weeks in, um, in different parts of the country. What are we looking like? How are the numbers? You know, is it, um, are we off to a good start? Like, you're someone who keeps their finger right on the pulse of our community game. What's it looking like so far yep. a couple of weeks in? We're, yeah, we're off to a good start. Um, yeah, we don't we don't wash up all the registration data and, and team numbers until towards the end of the season, but at this stage we're tracking really positively. Uh, certainly compared with last year, numbers are significantly up on last year. Of course, we've had a couple of years of COVID, so yeah. uh, for us the real benchmark is 2019, which was our first season right. um, prior to COVID. Um, and you know, on the, in the boys and men's game, we're, we're tracking comparably to 2019, so thereabouts um, may end up a little bit up, a little bit down, but but sort of comparable, which is good because that was a good year. Uh, and our women's and girls' numbers uh, are through the roof. We're, we're, we've been tracking uh, consistently from the beginning of registrations at approximately double where they were last year, and, and we're forecasting uh, those numbers to be significantly up on 2019. Mate, that's awesome. And is there anything in particular that's driving that? You know, like obviously, like you say, post-COVID now, and we've got a full runway at it, and we can get back connected with our clubs and our people and, and come together again. But is there anything in particular you think has driven that, or it's actually just um, a lot of the uncertainty has been taken away around the things that we're able to commit to now? Yep. Well, in terms of the women's and girls game, World yeah, Cup yeah. clearly had an totally. impact, and, and that's helped a lot. Um, uh, but also, our, our system is is much more aware of the opportunity um, with women's and girls participation, and also the demand for it. So we're seeing clubs standing up uh, girls' teams and women's teams where they haven't before. We're seeing provincial unions who are initiating uh, girls-only grades um, at teenage level. Um, and, and, and new and expanded women's grades. So um, system readiness along with a, a massively positive exposure at the end of last year and the, the fantastic role modelling that, that came out of that World Cup campaign has helped a lot on the women's and girls' side. Uh, on the men's side, I think it's just a return to normality. You know, we haven't yep. got that uncertainty around COVID. Last year we, we were dealing with gathering limits and COVID yes. vaccination certificates. All that's gone. And so people could just get back to, okay, this is what a normal year looks like, and a normal year for me looks like playing rugby. Yeah, 100%. Does that flow through our schools as well? Like, I know you guys aren't as heavily involved in schools rugby, but still no doubt um, have a good sense of what's going on there. How's that looking as well? Yeah, tracking pretty well. It's uh, it's harder to give you a, a real steer on where school numbers are at because school grades haven't, most of them haven't started yeah, yet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so the registration data tends to flow in a little bit later. Uh, but anecdotally, what we're hearing is that, you know, again, similar levels to 2019 in terms of numbers. Uh, 2019 was the first year uh, in several years that we actually reported an increase year on year in, in boys' numbers, teenage awesome. boys. So some of the stuff that we were doing pre-COVID to address um, declining participation, we think was starting to work. Yep. Again, we've had three years of disruption, so yeah, this year we sort of pick up where we left off, hopefully. Yeah, nice. Mate, Silver Lake, uh, that deal's now done. Um, you know, a lot of media around that last year, but um, you know, one of the results is that is an investment into the grassroots game, I think $7.5 million. Well, what does that look like and, and perhaps how are clubs using that? You know, is there any examples of where you think um, the Silver Lake investment is starting to come through into our club game and, and hopefully, like you say, things around maintaining our numbers, providing a great experience for people down at our clubs? Are you seeing any of that? Yeah. So in terms of that $7.5 million that was invested directly into the club network, the majority of that investment has gone into facilities, yep. um, whatever that looks like. But, you know, for a lot of clubs, they... They simply weren't or aren't equipped to, yeah. to cater to um, to teams uh, populated with women and girls. So, you know, um, having um, ur urinals as opposed to toilet cubicles. You know, um, so, 
shower cubicles versus you know, um, yeah. mass showers. So there's been a lot of investment into club facilities to make them more more welcoming for um, for women and girls. Um, and then, you know, in, outside of that seven and a half, there's been a lot of investment that's flowed into the game through provincial unions through ourselves uh, as well that we've been able to apply to things like our, our Girls Activator program. So we've got 14 of those around the country um, giving girls a, a first exposure to rugby. Started that uh, last year, we'll continue that this year, and we're, we're projecting 150,000 um, girls will, will have a, a rugby experience through that program this year. So wow. that's a direct benefit. Mate, that's awesome. And like, it's early days in many respects, particularly for the Silver Lake Partnership. It's really early days. You know, so much of that is to flow through the rugby union and into our community over time. But also, we are post COVID. You know, what are some of the things you'd love to see happen in club rugby? What are the, some of the things that you're really promoting to our clubs and schools? Um, you know, to try and utilise that investment, but also to maintain numbers and give, give a great experience. Yeah, probably two areas. The first is facilities, which I've spoken yep. to. You know, so we've been really fortunate the last two years. We've had Bunnings as a partner for our yeah, national yeah. championships uh, across all, all competitions. Uh, Bunnings have their club grant scheme, and so we, for two years now, I've been privy to all of those applications from across our club network. And it's fair to say that uh, club facilities you know, can can do with some investment um, yeah. across the, across the country. The, the Bunnings program has has just been magnificent, um, and that you know thirty thousand dollar investment into last year it was in ten clubs. Um, that makes a real difference. But man, if we could you know, if we could replicate that across fifty or hundred clubs, that would be great. Um, the other area that um, I think you know, would really benefit from from increased investment is. Um, the volunteer aspect of clubs, so club administration and running clubs, right? Like it's just increasingly challenging for clubs, um, not just rugby clubs, but sports yeah. clubs in general, to find volunteers with the time and the capacity to run a club yeah. uh, or to to run you know teams. So um, yeah, any investment that can help in, in that regard will go a long way. And and we are seeing some of our provincial unions starting to invest more in that side of the game around club health as well, which is really positive. Mate, that's awesome. Um, you know, we there's always discussion around player safety and, and different rules and trials to try and make sure that the game, while dynamic and, and really tough, is, is safe. And you've done a number of things in club rugby this year, um, particularly around tackle height is probably the main one. Um, firstly, what drove that? And secondly, uh, we are one, two and three weeks into the club season. I went down and watched my local rugby club on Saturday, um, which are playing under some of the new rules. You know, what does it look like? How's it going? Yeah, again, it's we, we think it's going pretty well at this stage. It's largely anecdotal feedback, um, and probably a bit mixed around the country, depending on which game you watch, as to how well it's being applied uh, or implemented. But by and large, um, you know, our sense is that as uh, people, players, and referees and coaches have ad- adapted to it really well. We're not getting blowback that people aren't liking. I think one of the key things in, with regard to that is that. We trialled it last year in limited grades. We, we then engaged with people that played under that law variation. They liked it. They thought they f- it felt safer to play with a lower tackle height. They also felt that the game was more enjoyable. It flowed better. So we were able to anchor um, this year's innovation across all community grades on participant feedback rather than just NZR you know, from a glass tower yeah. um, adjudicating on something. So it's landed pretty well. So what what is the exact, <laughs> the exact tackle variation? It's Is it... I might be under the nipple line, or like what? How? How? What is the exact? Um, so that when we're we're down watching the local club, we know what we're looking at. Yep. Um, what's the rule? So uh, the, the the tackle must move, first tackle it must tackle below the sternum, which is slightly below the nipple line. Nipple line for those that aren't that au fait with human anatomy, sure, right? So sure. just a little bit lower than the um, than the nipple line. Um, the second tackler 
or any subsequent tackler, um, still um, the existing law applies in terms of tackling below the shoulder. And so what we wanted to, to avoid was a situation where both tacklers are going in at the sternum and, yeah, and we yeah, create yeah. An op- a risk or an opportunity for head-on-head collisions. So yeah. that's why we've left any second or subsequent tackler at the shoulder or below. Yeah, cool. And so you're saying trialled a little bit last year, feedback was good, and so now it applies to all club rugby and all school rugby, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, all community grades. Um, it's a trial again for this year, so again, yep. we're, we're really we're really committed to engaging with, with our participants. Right, look, we only make these changes to make the game safer and more enjoyable to play. Yep. So if we get feedback or our observations um, through assessment of, of the trialers that it's not achieving one or both of those things, then then we may not continue with it. But I have to say... Uh, intrinsically and intuitively it feels right and the, the initial feedback we're getting from participants is that it's working so I think it's here to stay. Yeah I must admit I went down and watched Puna play the mount on Saturday and um, even though I knew the rule I actually didn't even think about it till about 30 or 40 minutes in and, and I didn't actually notice it yeah it was it was a good game it was nice and open you know perhaps there were more offloads I'm not too sure but you know it's also April and the ground's firm and, and always see probably quite a good style at that time of year and the score was 20 to 6 so it wasn't you know necessarily it was still just a good game of footy I thought so um, certainly wasn't causing a lot of discussion down where I was watching on Saturday what's um I know you know perhaps in France I know directors from world rugby recommendations etc um, they'd like to go a little bit further but we we've just are we just dipping our toes in the water we do something we get a bit of feedback and we go from there yeah, to a degree. So when, one, one thing I'll say, or the first thing I'll say is we're not done with uh, yep. these law innovations, right? So we think that we, this is um, a good approach to the game, is to try things, and then if they work, we'll bake them in. If they don't, we'll, we'll, yep, we'll back go off. back to where they were. We'll try something different. Um, as you say, the French the French for, for a number of years now have been um, playing with uh, all tackles below the waist uh, at community level, and the English, the RFU have... Uh, just announced that at the end of last year for this season. Um, our, our assessment was that below the sternum is the, the right level. Uh, as you said, when you watch a game, you don't notice a huge difference, right? And yet what it's done is it's you know, sort of it's lowered the, tack, the upper limit by about six or eight inches. And that just removes that risk, right, of head-on-shoulder or head-on-head yeah. contact between the tackler and the, and the ball carrier um, without massively changing the way the game is is played. Um, interestingly, World Rugby uh, have had a look at uh, all of the trials that are in play, the French initiative, uh, ours in particular, a couple of others around the, the world, and um, where they are landing is that um, that below the sternum is probably the appropriate upper limit, so um, that's a nice validation actually of, of our work. Totally, and I, I think um, quite often you hear you know, people hear these rules and they say, oh, you know, well, you can still get knocked out on your hip or you still get knocked out on your knees. But actually, I'm told, because um, maybe I've said those sort of things over the years, Steve, who knows? But um, mm. it's actually the majority of concussions are head on head or high, shoulder on head or, or those higher points of contact, aren't they? Yep, that's where, that's where the majority of concussions happen. And, and look, we're realistic here, right? Like we, uh, we want to take all possible steps to remove risk from the game. Yeah. Um, but you know, short of removing all contact from the game, we will never remove all risk. So you know, it's, yep. it's a it's a fine line for us between uh, preserving the traits and attributes of the game, and, and we're firm believers in the benefits that participation in sport, and in particular participation in rugby, offers over the risks. But we're really cognizant of the risks, and we'll continue to invest a lot of time and effort in um, in mitigating those risks. So, what's the process around? Um, you know, we're, we're a few weeks in, and and you and your team want to get out and watch a bit of stuff and get a bit of feedback from. Um, from all the people participating in it, school rugby starts after Easter, um, and see where we stand. 
Yep, exactly. Um, not, and not just you know myself and my team going and standing on the sidelines. We've got a more robust uh, approach to um, evaluating and assessing it as well. So, That's good to hear. Yeah, so we've, <laughs> we're, we're videoing games. We'll be formally surveying and engaging yep. in, in focus groups. Uh, so as I say, it's it's not just uh, Steve Lancaster and his cronies watching games <laughs> and making decisions, but yeah. we'll talk to the participants. Well, that's a good thing about footy these days, though. Pretty much everything's online, isn't it? Almost every game of club rugby and all sorts, so there'll be a huge amount of information you can take in. You talked about it a little bit earlier, but like off the back of last year, everyone's got a Women's World Cup rugby story. I've got heaps, mm. you know, like from going to games and being being blown away to, you know, hearing stories from Smithy and the things that they did, stories from the girls. We had the girls down in the bay, plenty at Ripper Rugby, taking photos with my boys and my little girl, Teresa yep. Fitzpatrick and and Portia all down. So it was it was awesome, you know, like um, you know, and we've also um, recently got a strategy and an investment into the women's game. Like, are we seeing, and you sort of hinted it a little bit earlier, off the back of that tournament and the whole, you know, um, if you can see it, you can be at stuff, you know, is yep. there an uptick in girls participating, you know, tangible stuff that's happened off the back of that tournament? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a tangible um, uptick in, in participation. So, um, as I said, I think I said earlier, now we're, we're tracking about double last year's registrations. Um, but it's bigger than that, right? It's actually, it's about... Um, what this game has done to the national psyche and awareness of the game and that the game is a game for all. Uh, it's interesting, I see this on the screen behind you, you know, the All Blacks podcast, and they're all All Blacks. I'm not surprised given it's the All Blacks podcast. Um, but as you've just mentioned totally. with your kids as well, right, like the World Cup and the Black Ferns last year have introduced a whole bunch of rugby role models that yeah. probably didn't exist or certainly not to the same degree before last year. So that's a real positive. Um, over half the people that attended World Cup fixtures last year um, we're attending a rugby game for the first time. So that's yeah, opened up an entirely new market. So the first full game of rugby my wife's ever watched, there you go. I think, to be honest. And yep. I love rugby, my boys. I love rugby. I make her watch way too much rugby. But invariably, she's either out of the room or on her phone or whatever it may be. But with other members of the family in the final, well, I was at the semi-final, which was unreal. Yep. But for the final, we all sat down and watched the whole thing. So that's that's I suppose that's a testament to the success of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, And you can't buy that drama either, nah, right, which helps nah, a lot. Nah. But um, so, so participation's been great. Uh, role models, um, just awareness has been fantastic. But... Within NZR and within our system, um, we've just, um, in the last two weeks, launched our women's and girls strategy. Uh, so we've got a much more focused and deliberate approach to um, growing the game for women and girls. And that's not just um, in a playing capacity, but it's actually women in rugby. Yeah. Right? Um, so uh, yeah, what, growing the number of, and again, you've seen the, you know, some of the media coverage around the Black Ferns uh, coaching appointments. You know, we, we want to see um, yeah. female coaches of female teams going forward, and male teams for that matter. Yeah. It takes time to grow them, but, um, but the strategy paints the pathway for us to do that. Um, and you know, underpinning the strategy is significant investment in women's and girls' rugby. So um, $22 million uh, next year uh, budgeted within NZR for uh, growing the women's and girls' game. We've got six new roles within NZR alone. We've got new programs that we're standing up. So there's a bit of substance behind yeah. um, behind the rhetoric as well. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Watch the space, how good. Look, there's always always conversation around participation, particularly at a junior level. You know, mum won't let their boys play rugby anymore. All the different things that kids can do these days. You know, my son's school holidays, he's out there now, probably watching NBA or something, whatever it is. Don't worry, Steve, he's playing footy in a couple of weeks as well. But the point being, super competitive out there. Maybe there's more things to do than when you and me were young. What are we doing? You know, what are we doing at that, at that entry level when kids first come into contact with a game? What are we doing first to get them into the game? And secondly, I suppose to hang on to them so that they become, mm. you know, lifetime members of the New Zealand rugby community. Yeah, so it's a really valid reflection on society as a whole, right? The world's changing. Yeah. Um, 
kids have more options. People have less disposable time, um, more disposable income. So the world's changing. And, and as um, the CEO of one of our uh, provincial said to me um, just yesterday, actually, um, used to be okay to smoke at work. Yeah, you know, it's not now. Yeah. Um, so why, why should rugby look exactly the same as it did when people could go to work and, and, yep. and pull out a cigarette? Um, of course it shouldn't, right? Rugby has to change. So uh, in a nutshell, we are changing. Um, yeah, we're not trying to um, fundamentally change the game, but we recognise that, that the game needs to be participant-centred. And uh, while that's, that's jargon, really what that means is understand what people are looking for in the game and then give them that, rather than expecting them to mould themselves to what the game thinks they should look like or, or how they should fit in. Um, so things like uh, more smaller-sided playing opportunities, uh, 10 aside, 7 aside, uh, keeping junior players in small, smaller-sided forms for longer, right? So there's, yep. you know, there's, a, there's a mindset um, amongst the, uh, some people that you know, kids need to progress to 15 aside as quickly as possible, specialise as early as possible. What we know from research um, and data is that actually that's not the case. Kids benefit from playing a wide range of sports for as long as possible, playing as many positions as possible for as long as possible, um, having as many touches, making as many tackles. So, so giving the kids what they want in yeah. the game. Um, at teenage level, um, yeah, we are investing heavily in promoting more events in the, tour- the tournament weeks. So yeah, uh, yeah, secondary yeah. schools have summer tournament week, winter tournament week. Rugby was largely MIA up until a couple of years ago in terms of those tournament weeks. Oh. We now have, um, this year we're, we're forecasting to have about 8,500 teenagers playing rugby in um, the two tournament weeks. So wow. we're, we're gearing up in that space again, just meeting demand. Yeah, because yeah. that's things. Because it's, um, you know, like the, you, you did right, there's people, you know, we all, so, so often, you know, what we think our kids want is driven by parents or driven by coaches, but actually it's providing a good experience for the kids, isn't it? Is there, um, and I know with a lot of stuff as well, we've taken, or in some areas, um, rep rugby's coming on later on in life and all that sort of stuff. Like, And I think the old traditional stalwart rugby supporter on the leaner at the club would say, well, that's not preparing all blacks anymore and we need to get them into positions and they need to learn to win and lose. They need to do all this sort of stuff. But actually, um, you know, is that stopping our ability to prepare all blacks and black ferns or not? No, no, absolutely not, right? And um, so you're right, some of those you know, traditional mindsets around how rugby has looked for the last 30, 50, 100 years still prevail. It doesn't fit with the modern context, right? So in the teenage space, you know, we've got this phenomenon of teenage drop-off, particularly with teenage boys. Um, it's particularly bad at sort of year 11, isn't it? Or yes. 10, 11, 12, yeah, once they, they come into high school, they get involved, and then perhaps after mm-hmm. a couple of years they drop away. That's right. So no surprises there. The, you know, at around age 15, which is around the point where um, young boys in particular will realise whether or not they're in line to make the first 15, they'll make mm-hmm. some decisions around their continued participation. Oh, or maybe their school doesn't even offer rugby, right, because it doesn't have the resource or the capacity. So... Um, you know, to, to address that, that drop-off um, area, um, we, we need to mould the game a bit more and be more flexible in how we deliver it. One of the things that um, the, the review we undertook at Secondary School Rugby back in 2019 told us is that um, performance rugby in secondary schools casts a really long shadow. Right. And, and that shadow is diminishing the experience for, for those that aren't in that performance frame. So we want to see the game um, you know, meet the needs of all kids that want to play. And, and, and for us, you know, I guess if we talked about Nirvana for us, it would be that every kid that wants to play rugby can play rugby, right? that no one gets yep. turned away. Um, to do that, we have to change how we offer it a little bit. Right? It might not be 15 aside. It might not be a full, a full winter season. It might be a later start date so they can finish their summer sports. And then. And is that uh, challenging the norm a little bit around rugby has to be played on a Saturday or, or yep. rugby has to be played on a certain size field by a certain amount of people, certain shape goes in a certain position? Like We actually have to encourage 
our PUs and our schools and our areas to actually potentially look at that a bit differently because even though you set the tone, they deliver it, don't they? Yep, that's right. We don't control that. Um, we influence it. Um, you know, There are things we control through regulations and policy, but really what we um, would like to think we do and we encourage all of our stakeholders to do is just listen to the participants, right? So they look, engage them, understand what they're looking for and then and then meet that. Yeah, totally. And I think so often an experience is determined just from my own personal experiences taking my boys team that if you turn up to a club that is organised and the fields are marked out and everyone knows what's going on and you know where you're going and um, and people are there with a smile on your face, like you say, the amazing volunteers that are out there, mm. that's 60, 70% of the battle done, isn't it? And actually what happens between the white lines is just to make sure they have a bit of fun. Yep, give them a great experience, right? And, and one thing I probably should clarify and want to clarify is yeah, all all of this is not anti-competitiveness. It's not anti-competition. It's not anti-high performance, right? Though, there's a really important place for high performance and for pathways in rugby. Rugby is a competitive sport, right? So, irrespective of number of players on the field or what law variations you're playing under, it's a competitive endeavour. Someone's it's human trying nature to win. a bit in rugby, isn't it? Like yep. you try and provide. I say to the boys, go out and have fun. But you know, being yep. young boys, they just go out there and, and still try and rip in and win the game. It's just it's just Absolutely. in their nature. Absolutely <laughs> right. So we, so don't don't take any of the you know the, the experimentation or the innovation we're doing as being anti-competition or anti-progression to higher levels. Um, but what we do now know, and this is particularly valid in our women's and girls participants, is that a lot of our participants don't have that aspiration, right? So there's an assumption that everyone that plays the game wants to go as high as they can. Yeah. And for some, that's absolutely true, and we need to meet that aspiration. Um, but for others, they're really happy just having a run around with their Play mates. Play with their mates. Yep. Yeah, 100%. There's, um, you know, I wanted to ask, you know, and you sort of touched on a little bit already, but like um, New Zealand rugby isn't as involved in school rugby as perhaps it is in other parts of the community. But I know um, over time you're starting to build conversations and relationships with a lot of those schools and those various competitions. You know, what would you like to see from New Zealand rugby perspective um, in schools? Because I know, you know, absolutely your desire is not to, to take over and, and mm. run the shop, so to speak, but it's to, you know, because um, effectively, I think anyway, um, you know, schools is the largest cohort of rugby clubs in the whole country, you know, like with the highest participation, the biggest numbers, and they're there on site, and it's a great opportunity to, to show them a great game, you know? Yep. Yeah, look, it's a really challenging space, uh, secondary school rugby. And again, the first thing I want to say is... Um, we're big, we're big believers in secondary school rugby. We think schools should deliver rugby. Yeah. Um, and importantly, we know that kids like to represent their school, right? Given a choice, they want to put on their school colours. That's their tribe for totally. those five years that they're at high school. So that's really important. Um, but we have a different relationship with schools to what we have with clubs because they're not our members by and large. Yes. Right. So we don't have that, that, that membership-based um, relationship, which means that they're a little bit more autonomous in how they deliver the game. But in saying that, it's a very symbiotic relationship, right? So we... And when I say we, I mean provincial unions rather than NZR. We provide the referees, you know, we provide the draws, we provide the rules and, yeah. and the, you know, the, the construct for the game. Um, schools provide the grounds, they provide the players, the, the coaches, right? So not, neither exists without the other. Um, what we would like to see is a stronger, um, more integrated relationship between uh, NZR, probably or more than likely through the provincial unions rather than NZR directly, um, with the schools, with the school network, right, so that there can be genuine engagement on that participant-centred approach that I talked about, how rugby is delivered, what grades kids are really looking for. We've got rugby um, you know, interests at our, at our heart, so of course we want to see as many kids as possible playing rugby. Totally. Now, rugby's just another sport for most schools, right, and they yep. have a, a whole range of schools, uh, sports on offer. 
um, and actually they exist there to provide an education for kids, right? So we know that if, unless rugby's contributing to the school environment, to the education experience, then it's probably not adding value to the school. So we want to work with schools on, okay, how, how do we ensure that um, all the benefits that rugby brings are adding value to the school environment? Um, but as I said, that, you know, that, um, there's probably two, two cohorts of schools right at, um, at the present. There's the big rugby schools, and some of them are doing a great job of fostering rugby at all levels, but for some of them that performance shadow is really having a detrimental impact on kids that don't see themselves within that performance framework. And then there are schools that are just ambivalent, right? It's just rugby's not important. We don't yep. really care if we have it or not. And so we'd like to engage with, um, with all of those schools yep. around how can we help. How can, how can we help um, ensure that rugby is adding value into the school environment and as many kids as possible have the opportunity to play? Yeah, totally. Mate, I want to finish on the last question around something you touched on again as well, but like, you know, perhaps the most important element to it all is, is the people who help deliver it, the coaches, the volunteers, the referees, etc. Um, is there things that are in the irons in the fire, things that already happened to try and ensure that we keep those numbers and look after them and reward them? Because I sometimes I do look at other sports it is so often the success of a club or even a school, to be honest, as well, is the result of two or three volunteers who are just doing so much, you know, and there's only so much they can probably really do. Um, it's the same with coaches, it's the same with referees sometimes and all sorts of different volunteers, no, no matter what they do. I look at other sports sometimes and I see things like, you know, golf clubs do have manager courses, you know, like there is things like around club managers and there's actually a bit of a pathway and there's a way to do it and you go through and you, sometimes you go to the States and learn off other ones and then you go up yep. to a bigger club, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm just wondering if that sort of stuff's on our radar because I, I often think I look at my own area in the Bay of Plenty and there's some clubs that are thriving and, and there's reasons for that around um, the resource that they have. But then I look at other clubs that actually one really, really good manager could almost run two or three clubs or, you know, it could run a number of sports which rugby is a part of. You know, I just wonder sometimes is that the sort of stuff we think about because, you know, to the point we both made earlier, um, the experience is not just what happens on the field, you know. It's, it's um, you know, any number of things before the whistle's even blowing, you know. Yeah. So I'll uh, catch That's quite. my pitch. Those are my yeah, ideas. No, I get yeah, it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I'll catch quite within community rugby is, you know, we believe in rugby at the heart of our communities and communities yeah. at the heart of rugby, right? And so if people feel part of a community, they're probably likely to stay a part of that community. How do people feel valued? Um, you know, I don't think the answer, well, I'm certain the answer isn't about paying every club yes. volunteer. Yeah. Um, but you talk about clubs that are in the bay that are thriving and those are not, I, I would hazard a guess that those that are thriving probably have a paid employee or yep. more than one. Um, not every club can afford to have a paid employee. So a number of unions um, this year uh, have are, are piloting different programs and there's a, there's a range of different approaches around um, club admin support provided by the provincial unit. It might be that they're servicing two or three clubs or supporting two or three clubs um, here in Auckland. Uh, I know Auckland Rugby are doing that. Um, Northland Rugby Union um, up, up north of us, um, similarly different approach but similar philosophy around helping clubs to be more, more self-sustainable through a little bit of admin support. Um, we, we're, we're fortunate enough to have um, the support of Sport NZ at the moment. We're undertaking a two-year review, or, um, okay. which we'd loosely term the, the Club of the Future review. Uh, sounds a bit futuristic, but really the brief for that review is how do we ensure that um, the club network is thriving and adding value into its communities for another 25 years, yep. right? And so understanding what that looks like, as you said, it might be club manager programs, it might be a range of web-based content or resources yep. that we can provide. Yep. All of that's on the table. Um, that that review runs through to the end of this year, um, but we're already starting to dip a toe into the in the water around some of those sort of initiatives around club support, club admin. Um, 
Yeah, but ultimately making people feel valued because you're right, you know, and you see it time and again, and particularly in schools, right, where you know, one or two committed people drive a really successful program, the person leaves and the program falls over, right? Totally. So it's about building sustainability. Mate, no doubt you have colleagues all around the world who try and solve all these issues, um, you know, and there's parts of the game that are thriving and there are parts that we always need to work on. How, how do we stack up against, you know, the community game around the world? Because, you know, here we just see the stuff in, in front of our nose. We see France doing well. We see Ireland doing well. We hear a bit of murmurs around what's going on in England. You know, we hear, we see a lot of what's going on in Aussie and, and perception is a little bit perhaps that their playing numbers are dropping and they've got some challenges and all that sort of stuff. Mm. How do we stack up, you know, in the community space compared to some of our... Um, you know, nations that we we play against at the international mm. level. C- community rugby is in really good heart in New Zealand, and, and that and that and I say that with reference to community rugby around the world, not just here in New Zealand. Yeah, we we do often dwell on issues right. Oh, there's less volunteers, yeah. and it's harder for clubs to run, and there's declining you know teenage participation, which by the way is not a new phenomenon, right? And yeah. it's not a rugby only phenomenon, but um, actually rugby's in really good heart. You know, we've got seven hundred and fifty. Uh, sorry. Um, 450 clubs we got, or in excess of, um, you know, we've got over 250 schools playing rugby. Uh, our numbers are, are healthy, so there's a lot that's really good. Um, but one of the, the good things about uh, benchmarking internationally is that while, while at um, test match level, you know, nations will compete and they won't share, at community rugby level, we're, we're not competing with each other, and so we try and leverage off each yes. other. So I connect with my counterparts around the world a couple of times a year. We share things, right? So uh, Game On, which we introduced a couple of years yep. ago, uh, into community rugby, uh, copied with pride from from the RFU. And what's the elements to that game on? So game on is if you know the best example probably is if a, a team turns up on match day and they haven't got enough um, front rowers to to play contestable scrums, just go uncontestable. Yeah. But you're still uh, you're still playing for points, right? So you don't rather than yes. The, the worst thing I've seen and is you know is turning up to a a club ground. Um, and, and seeing players with their bags still in their cars and saying, "Oh, game was cancelled. We didn't have a front row, or we're down. We didn't have enough numbers." So it's about enabling the game to happen, irrespective of numbers, um, irrespective of positional specialisation, and those yeah. sort of things. I love that. And we've got to tell our stories, don't we? Because as I said, um, when we're off here, like you know, my Saturday is turning up, you know, at Blake Park to take my kids' team, and there's literally two or three thousand people playing rugby. Then I go over and do some stuff at TBC, where they've got 350 rugby players, um, and a bunch of people who absolutely love it. You know, then I go down and watch the Puna Senior Team, who's you know, had growth in their senior club as well. So we are getting it right in a number of ways. Yep. My last question for you, mate, is, you know, you, you didn't talk about it too much, but you had a pretty successful playing career. You know, there's Mertz and Norm Maxwell and the Majors. There's all sorts of great names that you played with. You know, is there anyone that you, or, or up here actually at Auckland Marist, is there anyone that you get on the leaner with on a Saturday and catch <laughs> up and reflect and tell war stories, you know, because that's also, yep. that's that intangible stuff. The stuff, the reason I'm involved in the game, the reason I love it, the reason I love having a chat like this and, and, and even the stuff we're saying off mm. camera as well, that's what I love. I love um, taking the kids in the morning and then heading off to my local rugby club in the afternoon um, and watching the senior team and solving all your black problems, solving all your problems, Steve, you know, um, all in that one afternoon and then going back home and, and rinsing and repeating. You know, that's, that's the stuff I love. That's where I connect and I don't just talk rugby. I talk of all, all sorts of things with my mates, you know. Like, do you do that? Who do you do that with, mate? Yeah, I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate, right, and I get to um, work in a sport that I love. And so, 
going down to the club on a Saturday afternoon, to, you know, well, I might tell my wife it's work. It's not. It's um, might attend. I've used a couple of yeah. times, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so no, look, I mean, it, that um, through my time at Canterbury and the Crusaders, I mean, that playing group are, are pretty much dispersed globally. So it's not yeah. as easy to connect on a Saturday afternoon. And a number are still heavily involved in in professional rugby and otherwise engaged. But you know, Auckland Marist is my club. I get down to the club as often as I can. Um, I stood behind the goalpost with John Akarangi, who's oh, um, head coach of Marist this year, uh, former Crusaders teammate um, and school uh, schoolmate actually. So um, had a good natter with John. Unfortunately, couldn't influence the result, which was a bit of a shame. Uh, Kevin Nepier is another good Marist man that um, I played with at the Crusaders. Yeah. Missed a call from Neps yesterday actually, so if you're listening, mate, I will call you back. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's good to connect with old mates, that's for sure. Oh mate, how good! And I think that's a special thing about New Zealand rugby. A great point to finish on is that throughout our whole club game, junior through to senior. There is an absolute plethora of former professional rugby players giving back, isn't it? For no money, for no reason in particular, just taking their kids or supporting their local club. Um, it is an absolutely essential element to why our game is is so successful. Yep. Mate, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I hope um, the rest of the club season goes really well. I um, really look forward to seeing some of those initiatives come into action around the club scene. Cheers, mate. Appreciate uh, it. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it too. Cheers. The All Blacks podcast is powered by our official cloud software partner, SAP, helping our teams in black be the best run in sports. Hosted by Rob Dunn in the Hargrave Street Studio. Produced by Carl Thompson from Blue and Ginge, the podcast producers. Video editing by Mac Leesberg, graphics by Western Design, content advising from Andy Burt, and commercial manager for the podcast is Valeska Hoth. Follow the All Blacks podcast on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere you get your podcasts.